Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. Thank you, Linda. Me again. When I sat down as the children were going out, my son said to me, that was a short sermon. I wonder what he'll say at lunchtime. (laughs) In my computer, I have a file named Quotes. From time to time, when I come across an insightful saying, something that I might want to quote in a sermon, I save it in the Quotes file. Its predecessor, before computers were even invented, was a ring binder. It goes back a long way. It contains cuttings from newspapers and church magazines, scraps of paper on which I've scribbled wise things that I've heard and sounded worth quoting, and some things even that I wrote myself and kept because I thought one day they might be worth using. At some stage in the 1990s, I attempted to put it into some sort of order, collecting together quotes that related to a particular subject and even typing some of them out on A4 pages each with a subject heading. So there were subjects like attitudes, the Bible, the church, death. And as you can see, they were in alphabetical order. The verses in our reading today come from a section of the Old Testament book of Proverbs that is headed, The Proverbs of Solomon. And this particular section runs right from the beginning of chapter 10 to the middle of chapter 22. There are 375 proverbs in all. And I can't help wondering whether this is Solomon's quotes file. His collection of wise sayings, not necessarily all written by Solomon himself, but collected from his conversations with the illustrious visitors that he used to receive and his wise advisors. If it were... Solomon's quotes file, that would explain why there is often no discernible link between one proverb and the next. The order seems entirely random, but occasionally we find two or three proverbs collected together on the same theme. In the first sermon in this series, Anthony explained that the the name of Solomon is generally associated with wisdom. I won't repeat what he said about that. But we should not regard Solomon as unerringly wise. In the study Bible that I use, the first book of Kings, chapter 11, is given the title, Solomon's Folly. That chapter reports his dalliances with many foreign women. It says that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's hardly wise. (laughs) 
And it says that his foreign wives led him astray so that he was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. Solomon also conscripted ethnic minorities and used them as slave labor in his grand building schemes, the temple and the royal palace. Some would say that was unwise because he was disobeying God's command, which had been to exterminate those minorities. You and I might consider that using them as slave labor was unwise for entirely different reasons, reading it all these years later. So as we approach Proverbs, the Proverbs written and collected or collected by Solomon, we should not assume that he was the fountain of all wisdom. We must read them critically and discern what wisdom, if any, a particular proverb holds for us, living as we do in a very different world from his. We certainly shouldn't read Proverbs in the same way we read the promises or the prophecies that we find in the Bible. Most proverbs are short, compact observations that express a perceived truth about human behavior. Many of them are concerned with living life well and doing what is just and right and fair. And their purpose is said to be to make the young wise and the wise wiser. The five proverbs that Linda has just read to us have been gathered together because they have a common theme. They all relate to the plans we make and how our plans stand or fall in the context of God's plans for us. Let me read again the first three proverbs that Linda read. In their hearts, humans plan their course but the Lord establishes their steps. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. A person's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand their own way? So what do those have to say to us? Taking them together, we might say something like this. We make plans with our limited human knowledge. If we are people who profess faith and are devoted to God, we do so prayerfully, hoping that the plans we make are aligned with God's plans for us. But even as we make our plans, we're prepared for God to overrule them if he has better plans for us. And because we don't see the whole picture as God does, we can never be absolutely sure whether we have got it right. Before we explore that further, let's now look at the last two proverbs that Linda read, which occur together in chapter 21 as a pair. There is no wisdom, no insight... No plan that can succeed against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. So the first warns us not to fight against the Lord, and the second tells us 
not to fight without the Lord. And in their original context, the obvious message was a military one. But in common with the first three, they have a wider application, a warning not to resist God's plan for us, whatever that might be. And advice, as we try to obey the Lord, to fight his battle, so to speak, to rely not only on tangible resources, which are represented by horses in the proverb, but to rely also on the Lord. These proverbs are not a promise that we will always succeed, but an indication of the best way to fight a a battle or face a situation. In the couple of months since I was told that I was to preach on these proverbs, I have written many words trying to analyze how these principles play out in our lives and how we might interpret the situation when we find that our plans are scuppered. And I decided uh, late on in preparing this sermon, partly to try and keep it under 45 minutes, that I was going to delete all that and instead tell you four stories And uh, two of these stories come from the Bible, and two are relatively recent and have been shared with me by people that I know well. And I'm going to leave you to work out for yourselves how these parables are reflected in the story. These proverbs, I should say, are reflected in the stories. And more importantly, leave you to work out how they might be, be reflected reflecting your own experience. The first story relates to the Old Testament king, David, who came to the throne at the age of 30. About seven years into his reign, he conquered Jerusalem, made it his headquarters, and an opulent palace constructed of stone and cedar wood was built for him there. It was a gift from the King Hiram of Tyre. Meanwhile, the chief symbol of the nationhood of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant, which had been carried with them through their travels in the wilderness, had been languishing in obscurity for many years in the home of a man named Abinadab. That's the best I could find by way of a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. It's actually picture of a model that you can buy on Amazon. Uh, It had been languishing in obscurity since before Saul's predecessor came, uh, before Saul, David's predecessor, came to the throne. David decided he needed to bring it to Jerusalem. He had it brought to Jerusalem with music and dancing and great pomp and ceremony and housed in a special tent. And sometime later, David had a thought. It didn't seem appropriate that he should dwell in a grand cedar palace while the ark, which was the very symbol of God's presence with his nation, remained in a tent. He decided to build more suitable accommodation for the ark. He shared this idea with his advisor, Nathan, and he thought he too thought that it was a good idea. He told David to go ahead and do it. And David began to make his plans to rehouse the ark. 
But then God revealed to Nathan that this was not his plan. God was content for the ark to remain in its tent, at least for the time being. He instructed Nathan to tell David that building a temple for the ark was not to be his role. And God even explained the reason for that. He said that David had fought too many wars and shed too much blood. I think that is a a thing I'd like to preach a whole sermon on, but that's for another time. It would be for his successor, the peace-loving Solomon, who at this point had not even been born, to build the temple. David accepted what Nathan told him. Although, and I only discovered this through reading in the book of Chronicles in the last couple of weeks, which is why what I say about study of the Bible seems to be important, because we can never stop learning. He continued to make detailed plans for the temple, and he allocated material resources to the project so that it was all ready for Solomon to carry out when he acceded to the throne. In the New Living Translation, one of these proverbs reads, We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Fast forward over a thousand years. When Paul and Silas set out on what we now call Paul's second missionary journey, Their plan was to visit the churches that Paul had already planted with Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And when they had done that, the question arose, where next? They looked at the map. Their map, unlike mine, didn't show where they were about to go. didn't show where they'd come from either. But they are in... uh, Antioch. There are two Antiochs on that, map, on that map, one on the right and one in the center. The one near the center is where they've got to. And uh, they look at the map and think, where next? And the province of Asia beckons to the west with several key cities and then beyond them on the west coast, the capital city of Ephesus. It was the obvious next step. So they tried to go in that direction. But their plans were frustrated. We don't know how. Maybe they were refused visas. All we know is that they tried and failed to enter Asia. So they came to the border between Mycenae, which lay to the west of them, and Bithynia to the northeast. You may be able to see that on the map. And they looked at the map again and decided that Bithynia should be their next port of call. And again, their plan was frustrated. They tried to enter Bithynia, but were unsuccessful. Again, we don't know the reason. So instead, they passed through Mycenae and came to the port of Troas. If you're following the arrow, you can see that on the map. And in Troas, they were joined by Luke, the author of the book of Acts, in which this story is told. It's told, incidentally, in just six verses. I'm making a bit more of it. Imagine how 
Confused and frustrated, Paul and his companions must have been at this stage of the journey. Whatever they planned had come to nothing. First Asia and then Bithynia had been barred to them. They had achieved little since they left Pisidian Antioch. They had no idea where to go or what to do next. In Troas, Paul had a vision in the night. He saw a man from Macedonia, that's over in Greece, across the water, a man from Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. At breakfast the next morning, he shared the vision with his group of traveling companions, who at this stage included Silas, Timothy, Luke, and maybe others. He invited them to consider what God was saying. Note here Paul's collaborative leadership style. Together they concluded that God was calling them to take the good news of Jesus to Macedonia. And so they sailed from Troas to Neapolis and their next stop was Philippi, the leading city in that part of Macedonia. To paraphrase Neil Armstrong, this was just one small step for a group of men to another part of the Roman Empire. But from the perspective of history, it was one giant leap for mankind. It brought the message of Jesus into Europe. I doubt whether that was how Paul and Silas saw it, though, a few weeks later when they wound up in a Philippian jail, even though they did keep the other prisoners awake by singing hymns at midnight. In retrospect, when Luke tells the story of these travels, he places a theological interpretation on the frustrations and failures, which tend to make us look at them in a very unrealistic way. He interprets the failure to enter Asia and the failure to be able to get into Bithynia as the work of the Holy Spirit guiding them. In the message translation, one of our proverbs reads, we humans keep brainstorming options and plans, but God's purpose prevails. Let me just say a word at this point to anyone who has just received exam results, especially if those results mean that you can't pursue your preferred option for the next step in life, whether that is to go to a particular university or to, to take up a particular job. And even if there aren't any people in that category here, hopefully some might be watching or watch in days to come online. Your feeling now is one of disappointment. But it may be that in a few years' time, you will think that where you go or what you do next was better than what you had hoped to do and planned to do. You may one day interpret today's disappointment as God's plan for you prevailing. But, in the words of the song, it ain't necessarily so. It may be that there isn't a deep, God-ordained reason for your disappointment. Maybe it's just the way it is. All I can say on that, this topic is, 
is this, and I hope that you find it encouraging. In my first term at my second choice university, I met a young woman who was at her second choice university. Her name was Yeritza. Yes, this very Yeritza, and the rest is history. 54 years on, we still don't know how to interpret that theologically. Did God have a plan for us to meet? Was that why we both ended up in Bristol and not where we wanted to be? Or was it chance? I don't know to this day whether that was God's plan prevailing. But I am glad that I got my second choice. And I think she is too. (laughs) My third story is very similar in a way to Paul and Silas' story. It's a story about Natasha of our ministry team, who will be familiar to most of us, and her husband, Pete, who is one of our church wardens. And Natasha has given me permission to share this story with you. If she were not on holiday this week, I would have invited her to share it for herself. Uh, She wrote to me, Soon after we were married, Pete and I were offered the opportunity to go and live in South Africa. Pete had already lived there for a year, and we were keen to go. Doors kept opening until the interview, when suddenly the door rather strangely slammed shut. Undeterred, Pete agreed to an interview in Italy and attended, only to have that door also shut. And each time we'd been given the impression that the interview was a mere formality. In August of that year, we suddenly had the opportunity, whilst on holiday with friends in the US, for Pete to attend an interview in Boston. And we flew up there. To our surprise, the door was wide open, and six weeks later, we moved to live in Boston. Not such a God-ordained story, Natasha says, until I tell you the next bit. For the previous five years, I, Natasha, had suffered from severe chest infections, which frequently sent me to hospital. I'd been diagnosed with asthma in my late teens, and then went on to suffer from pneumonia and pleurisy. I even had my lung collapse when I was studying in Spain. I had years of investigations, scans, etc., and no one could ever find out the cause. I brought these dodgy lungs with me to Boston and within a few weeks had pneumonia. Well, the thing that God knew and we hadn't thought of was that Boston is world-renowned for its medical prestige. To cut a long story short, when I once again came, became seriously ill soon after our baby Jacob was born, the doctors decided to do some investigating. And they were the ones to discover that I had a tumour growing on my bronchus, windpipe, into my lung. The wonderful part of the story is that there was a world-famous surgeon living in Boston who managed to do the incredibly complex surgery needed to remove the tumour without removing any of my lung. So, whilst we planned to go elsewhere, the Lord established our steps and set us up to go and live somewhere that I could ultimately be healed from this crippling condition.
I was very moved when I read that from Natasha. In the Good News translation, one of our proverbs reads, The Lord has determined our path. How then can anyone understand the direction their own life is taking? Those three stories were all about long-term plans, building the temple, evangelizing whole provinces, going to work in a different country. What about shorter-term plans? The plans we might make for the next week, or even plans for the day when we wake up in the morning. How carefully do you plan week by week or day by day? Some people live spontaneous carefree lives. Others plan in meticulous detail. Nothing is wrong with either of those. But whichever you are, how open are you to God prompting you to change your plans? My final story comes from an African man named Kwesi Amoafo. There's a picture of him on the screen. He was my closest associate during the last two years of my time serving the Anglican Church of Kenya. At the time, he was a lecturer lecturer at the Church Army College in Nairobi. And between 2013 and 2015, he and I together wrote three books to, to equip African preachers. So I know Kwesi well. If I didn't know him well, I wouldn't tell you this story. A few weeks ago, I received an unexpected parcel. It was from Kwesi, and it contained a copy of a book that he has recently written and had published, entitled Stand Up for the Gospel. I've now read it, and I I want to read to you a short extract, which is part of a much longer testimony, speaking about his life as a businessman, and how God frustrated the efforts of a business rival who, unbeknown to him, was intent on destroying his business, using witchcraft in the process, and destroying Kwesi himself. He has just described how one Monday morning he arrived in the office to discover that the company accountant, Evans, had been shot several times by two armed gunmen, who stole a large amount of cash that he was taking to deposit at the bank. He and others rushed to the hospital and prayed there for Evans. This is how the story continues, just two paragraphs. A week later, I left home in the morning. But when I was halfway to the office in the city centre, I changed my mind and drove instead to our warehouse in the industrial area. When I arrived at the office a couple of hours later, I discovered two armed robbers had raided my office. My secretary, Jane, had been present with Evans when he was attacked and shot a week earlier. She recognized the two gunmen who came into the office as being the same ones who had shot Evans. She said, this time, They asked specifically for me. Not finding me, they stole more money from Jane, roughing her up as well as the office messenger, Edmund. I arrived in the office barely an hour 
after they had left. If it had not been for my detour to the warehouse, these two dangerous men would probably have found me in the office and shot me to death. If I didn't know Kwesi, I wouldn't read that story, but knowing him, I'm sure it's authentic. Kwesi made his plans for the day and set off to go to the office. Halfway there, in response to what he believed at the time and still believes was an impulse that came from God, he changed his plans and went to the warehouse. That seemingly insignificant change of plan probably saved his life. The plan to destroy his business also failed. And he writes that Evans made a full recovery, though he still walks with a limp, and now pastors a large church in Nairobi. Those last two proverbs again. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle. But victory rests with the Lord. So I end with a question. How ready are we to change our plans in response to what may be an impulse from God? Are we too inflexible, too rigid in our own plans to make last-minute changes? Or are we ready and willing to follow an impulse which may turn out to be a God-given impulse to change our plans. Maybe, like Quasi, to protect us against being in the wrong place at the wrong time, or to put us in the right place at the right time to be part of God's bigger plan. In our closing hymn, we're going to express the belief, the hope, that God is working his purpose out in history. Let us stand to sing. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week.